Thank you guys for coming. Once again, this is uh, the part of the podcast where I um, I read extremist literature. So I was actually just going through this. Um, I was just going through this book here, and I was looking at some of the pictures, and I happened across this picture here. It says "Go away, Satan." And I remember just, I, I don't know what it is about this picture that, that triggered this memory, but I remember my mother telling me that if I said Jehovah's name, that demons couldn't get me. And that's kind of the thing that the Jehovah's Witnesses fear the most. It's not ghosts, it's not anything else, it's not burglars so much as demons. They are just scared to death of demons. And so, you know, of course, my mom instilled this fear in me, um, a fear that demons were going to get me. But if I said Jehovah's name, I would be safe. So, you know, in the dead of night, pitch black, uh, what was I afraid of? I was afraid of demons. And she gave us the, like all of us kids, these like fishing boxes, like these tackle boxes with a flashlight and a Bible and some Jehovah's Witness publication. It was different ones at different times, as far as I can remember. Um, and, yeah, so if we got scared at night, we would open up this tackle box, and we would read from the Bible, and we'd say Jehovah's name. <laughs> and, you know, I, there was a news story recently where people were talking about, um, I, I guess some people kidnapped somebody, some Jehovah's Witnesses, kidnapped somebody, forced them to say Jehovah's name over and over and over again in a car ride. And that just added that extra level of credibility to it. Like, the news story actually said they had these people saying, uh, or they had these people had this guy saying Jehovah's name over and over again. I just could not help myself but to believe it when I heard that. Um, I don't know. Who knows if it's completely true. I'm sure there are bits and pieces that are a little bit off, but time will tell. I'm sure somebody will do a rebuttal piece, and, and we'll get more information as time goes on. Anyway, I just thought it was pretty funny. Okay, so last time we left off on uh, page 7. It was the subheading, Fall Down and Do an Act of Worship to Me, paragraph 8. And so up to this point, Jehovah's Witnesses are kind of trying to get the point across to us that um, Jesus was tempted by Satan, and he rejected it, and he kept saying, you're the son of God, right? You're the son of God, so on and so forth. They're kind of driving that point home. So let's start on uh, paragraph 8 and give it a read, see what, see what else they have to say. The subheading is Fall Down and Do an Act of Worship to Me, paragraph 8. Read Matthew 4, 8 through 11. I'm not going to read the, the scriptures. With the third temptation, Satan abandoned subtly and revealed what he was after. That's a weird way to word that. Whatever. Satan showed Jesus, likely in a vision, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, but without their corruption. I'm wondering why they said in parentheses, likely in a vision, what other option would there be? It, it means they put some thought into it themselves. That's kind of strange. 
but without their corruption. So he showed all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, but without their corruption. He then told Jesus, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and do an act of worship to me. Worship. That was the real issue. Satan wanted Jesus to abandon his father and acknowledge the tempter as his God. Satan offered Jesus what might seem an easy way out. He implied that Jesus would have all the power and wealth of the nations and would not need to suffer. No crown of thorns, no scourging, and no torture stake. Notice what they said, no torture stake. The temptation was real. Jesus did not question Satan's domin- uh, dom- I'm sorry, Jesus didn't question Satan's dominion over worldly governments. Surely Satan would have given anything to turn Jesus away from the pure worship of his father. Yeah, I noticed they said torture stake there. That's the end of paragraph eight. But they said torture stake. That cracks me up. Um, In the end, their whole shtick with the torture stake is the fact that the word that's used in the Bible um, to describe what Jesus was nailed to is kind of ambiguous. Like, you don't really know if it's, uh, like, a stake or a cross or, or what. The word can mean a number of different things. Storos is the word, apparently. But we know that commonly, uh, like, around that time, it was pretty common for the Romans to use torture crosses. And I guess that's probably where it came from. Ultimately, we have no idea if it was a stake or a cross. We, as in humanity, we have no way of knowing. Even if Jesus was actually strung up on a, you know, on some piece of wood, stake or cross, we don't know what it was. So the fact that they claim that it was a stake and actively claim that it was a stake is a step too far for me. I think they're just trying to separate themselves from the rest of Christianity in another way. You know, they want to make their members different. They want to make their members, uh, they, they want to make them different by having them not celebrate Christmas, not celebrate birthdays, not celebrate anything. This is just one more way in which they can make them different. Uh, kind of a conversation starter almost. So anyway, this is paragraph nine. Today, too, Satan really wants us to give him our worship, either directly or indirectly. As the god of this system of things, he is the beneficiary of all the false worship offered up by the religions of Babylon the Great. But not content with billions of false worshippers, he wants to tempt true worshippers to go contrary to God's will. He tries to lure us to seek wealth and power in his world, Rather than, pre- uh, rather than pursue a Christian course that may involve suffering for the sake of righteousness. If we were to give in to the temptation to abandon pure worship and become part of Satan's world, we would, in effect, be bowing down and doing an act of worship to Satan, making him our God. How can we resist such a temptation? Okay, make note of what they're saying in this paragraph. They said, he tries to lure us to seek wealth and power in his world rather than pursue a Christian course that may involve suffering for the sake of righteousness. This is um, them not just coming out and saying that they don't think you should be going to college, though they do come out and say that pretty frequently. But this is just another small Thing. Another 
chip away at the marble. This is another way for them to push people into a certain direction, push them into not going to college, uh, into not trying to get a good job, into pioneering instead. They want you to go knock on doors, put all of your time and effort into their organization. And it says, for this, um, I'm sorry, it says, a Christian course that may involve suffering for the sake of righteousness. And interestingly enough, I kind of picked up on that attitude a little bit myself. Like, I, like if, I'm trying to think how to word this. If I feel like something is the right thing to do, then I will do it regardless of the consequences, regardless of the, the fallout that comes from it. And I'm sure a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses have the same thing that they've experienced with it. So anyway, this is just one more dig at college, a subtle dig um, at trying to get a good job, trying to better yourself. You shouldn't be trying to better yourself in this world. You should be trying to pour all your time and energy into the organization. Okay, so that was paragraph 9. This is 10. Note how Jesus responded to the third temptation. Showing his undivided loyalty to Jehovah, he immediately dismissed the tempter, saying, Go away, Satan. As he did with the first two temptations, Jesus then quoted a scripture from Deuteronomy that contains the divine name. There it is again, the whole divine name bit. Ugh. These people. It is written, It is Jehovah your God you must worship, and it is to him alone you must render sacred service. Okay, you know what? Let's look that up. Let's just take a quick gander at that, that Bible verse. Which one is it? It's, um, they list two. They got Matthew 4.10 and Deuteronomy 6.13. I'm guessing it's Deuteronomy 6.13. Uh, let's just look it up in the NIV. Oop, that's the King James Bible. Um, Let's look it up in NIV. Personally, I kind of like the NIV Bible. Um, I think that basically all, all translations are flawed in some way. There's no best translation, really. But uh, this is the NIV. That's the Bible that Kylie's great-grandmother uses, and she's used it her whole life. And I've given it a look through, and it seems legit to me. It's as legit as any translation. Um, certainly more legit than the Jehovah's Witnesses translation. Anyway, it says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Okay, that's, that's not the right verse. Um, all right, Matthew 4.10, let's try that one. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay. So that's, yeah, there you go. That's the, uh, that's the verse they were quoting here. So let's compare. Let's do a side-by-side. -side. It is Jehovah your God you must worship, and it is to him alone you must render sacred service. And here's the, the NIV version. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Interesting. Um, I wonder if this is a, one of the places in which the Tetragrammaton is actually listed in the Bible. I wonder if the Tetragrammaton is is in this verse originally. Um, there's no telling, but either way, I can tell you one thing for sure. Jehovah is not in that spot in the actual manuscripts. Okay, let's continue. 
Jesus, reje uh, Jesus thus rejected the attraction of a prominent but short-lived worldly career and an... E wow, that's interesting. They're just coming out and saying it at this point. Uh, short-lived worldly career and an easy life without suffering. He recognized that his father alone deserves to be worshipped and that to perform even a single act of worship, quote-unquote, to Satan would signify submission to him. Jesus steadfastly refused to make the wicked tempter his god. Having been rebuffed, the devil left him, quote unquote. I think that's I think that's a quote from the Bible. Okay, there's a footnote. Footnote number three. It says Luke's gospel lists the temptations in a different order, but Matthew's account is evidently chronological. Evidently chronological, okay. Consider three reasons why. Yeah, and then it goes into it. I'm not gonna bother. Um that's really interesting. Yeah, here's one thing about the Gospels that a lot of people don't really realize. This is the fact that they they are all kind of telling the same story, uh, or similar stories, but they're all telling it differently. They're all telling it in a different order, or they're all telling it um, with completely different characters, different events, um, a different perspective. It's just really, really interesting. In fact, I, one of these days I'd like to make a video on my main channel about like the Gospels and and what's wrong with them and how we know or why we know they're flawed in many different ways. Anyway, okay, let's continue on here. We can resist Satan and the temptations of his wicked world because, like Jesus, we have a choice. Jehovah has given us the precious gift of free will. Hence, no one, not even the powerful, wicked spirit tempter, can force us to abandon pure worship. When we loyally take our stand against Satan, firm in the faith, we are in effect saying, Go away, Satan. Remember, Satan left after Jesus firmly rejected him. Likewise, the Bible assures us, oppose the devil and he will flee from you. But yeah, something else I missed up above I wanted to touch on. Um, they're just outright, they're just going right after that whole don't bother going to college, don't bother getting a good job bit, because the end is here. It's not near anymore, it's here. And any, any five minutes now, um, you know, Armageddon's going to start the anointed people are going to get raptured to heaven and they're going to start slaughtering billions of people. Uh, literally everybody that's not an active believing Jehovah's Witness. So don't even bother because, you know, you're not going to... You don't want to be sitting in a classroom when that happens. You want to be out knocking on doors. That's basically what they're saying. Um, so, yeah, where was that? I was looking for that bit. Yeah, okay, here. Jesus thus rejected the attraction of a prominent but short-lived worldly career and an easy life without suffering. I don't think Jesus was even thinking about a career. I think he was talking about ruling over the world. I wouldn't consider that a career. I mean, that's just on the nose right there. Anyway. Okay, so that's that was uh, paragraph 11. So the next paragraph, 12 is under the subheading, The Enemy of Pure Worship. With the fun... Oh, wait a second. Let me just look at something. Um, okay, we've been in here 15 minutes. I'm going to go for 30 total. we got about... So I'll go till midnight um, Eastern time. With the final temptation, Satan confirmed that he is the original enemy of pure worship. 
Thousands of years earlier, in the Garden of Eden, Satan, uh, I'm sorry, Satan first revealed his hatred for worship of Jehovah. By seducing Eve, who in turn persuaded Adam to disobey Jehovah's command, Satan brought them under his leadership and control. In reality, he became their god, and they became his worshippers, even though they may not have known the real identity of the one misleading them. Furthermore, by investigating that rebellion in Eden, Satan not only challenged Jehovah's sovereignty or right to rule, but also launched an attack on pure worship. How so? Yeah, so this is just showing you another another good example of how they they firmly believe that Adam and Eve is a, a real, true, literal story. But they're not young Earth creationists. They're actually what's called old Earth creationists. They think the Earth is billions of years old. They have no issue with that. Their issue comes when evolution is entered into the picture. So they think that the Earth is billions of years old. They believe that dinosaurs existed millions of years ago and all that good stuff. But they think Adam and Eve were real literal people. So they were created by God, the whole Garden of Eden bit, the whole thing. And uh, it gets kind of confusing, honestly. So anyway, paragraph 13. The issue of sovereignty involves pure worship. Only the true sovereign, the one who created all things, is worthy of worship. When Jehovah created the perfect Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, he, uh, he purposed that eventually the entire earth would be filled with perfect humans who would willingly give him their worship, pure worship from pure hearts. Satan challenged Jehovah's sovereignty because he coveted that which rightly belongs only to the sovereign Lord Jehovah, worship. This is so strange to me because it seems to me like... The ethical thing to do if Adam and Eve sinned is to prevent them from having children, right? Tell them not to do that. Don't do it. In fact, make them sterile. Just make it so they can't reproduce. Wait for them to die. Create a new breeding pair. Problem solved, right? I mean, why are we... Why did God just allow them to breed seven billion people and create all this suffering and death and pain and misery. Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. God didn't think this through first. I mean, it's just ridiculous to me that anybody actually believes this story. Okay, so that was paragraph 13. Now, they got a little section here that says, what is worship? Um, Kind of interested to read that. Okay. Let me just read to the bottom of the next subheading here, and then I'll get to what is worship. Did Satan succeed in his attack on pure worship? This is paragraph 14, by the way. He managed to turn Adam and Eve away from God. Ever since, Satan has waged war against true worship, seeking to turn as many people away from Jehovah God. Wait, seeking to turn as many as possible away from Jehovah God. Satan did not let up in his efforts to, attempt, uh, to tempt Jehovah's worshippers in pre-Christian times. In the first century CE, he wickedly stirred up an apostasy by means of which the Christian congregation became corrupted, and pure worship eventually seemed lost. And that, in that, I guess they cite Matthew uh, 13 and Acts 20. Beginning in the 2nd century CE, worshippers entered a long period of spiritual captivity to Babylon the Great. 
the world empire of false religion. But Satan has not succeeded in defeating God's purpose uh, regarding pure worship. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his purpose. His name is involved, and he always lives up to his name. Jehovah is the unfailing fulfiller of his purpose. See, the fact that there's a war in the first place makes me wonder, it makes me think that it's possible that Satan might actually have a chance at winning it. Um, the fact that Satan is trying in the first place. I mean, you know, Christians, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, are all confident. Oh, Jehovah will protect you. God will protect you. God's going to win this war. Armageddon's going to be fought. Then there's going to be a thousand years, blah, blah, blah. Seriously, why is Satan bothering? Is it possible Satan might win? If so, maybe we should get on his side. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's really strange. Okay, so that was paragraph 14. That's the beginning, or that's the end of this subheading. Next one's called The Champion of Pure Worship. But there's a section here called What is Worship? And I want to give that a read. So let's, let's see what it says. It says, Worship may be defined as the act of showing respect and love for a god. Um, okay. So they were saying that you worship money earlier. Is money a god? Let's just continue reading it. In the Bible, the original language words rendered worship may convey the idea of someone showing deep respect or submission to creatures. Uh, those words may also describe a religious act to God or a deity. The context determines how the words are to be understood. Only Jehovah, the creator and universal sovereign, is worthy of our exclusive devotion. We worship Jehovah by showing respect for his sovereignty and by honoring his name. God, this is like really, really ridiculous. These two themes, Jehovah's sovereignty and his name, are featured prominently in the book of Ezekiel. The expression, Sovereign Lord Jehovah, is used 217 times in Ezekiel alone. And the statement, Know that I am Jehovah, 55 times. Okay. Jehovah is not used once in the Bible, actually. Just want to set the record straight there. Our worship, however, is not just a feeling. Rather, genuine worship involves action. When we dictate our life to Jehovah, we vow that in every aspect of our life, we will obey him as our sovereign and show the deepest respect for his name. Recall that in his reply to the third temptation, Jesus linked worship with sacred service. As worshipers of Jehovah, we are eager to serve him. We render sacred service to our God when we engage in activities that are directly related to our worship and that call for self-sacrifice. What activities? Okay, here we go. That call for self-sacrifice. This is Jehovah's Witnesses priming their people to do something that they wouldn't normally do. Sacred service comes in many forms, all of which are precious to Jehovah. We perform sacred service when we witness to others, share in meetings at our kingdom hall, and care for and construct our meeting places. <laughs> That's oddly specific. When we construct our meeting places. In addition, we render sacred service when we participate in family worship, support the relief work for needy fellow believers. You notice that? Support the relief work for needy fellow believers, volunteer at our conventions, or serve at Bethel. Huh, they actually cite two scriptures here. It's Hebrews 13.16 and then J-A-S 1.27. What is J-A-S? I don't know that abbreviation. It's not Joshua. 
Um, I don't know what that abbreviation is. Anyway, I should probably know that. It's weird. When pure worship is foremost in our minds and hearts, we will render sacred service day and night. We delight in worshiping our God, Jehovah. Revelation 7.15. Yeah, um, that's crazy. That's insane. So they're saying uh, we render sacred service, quote-unquote. We should be self-sacrificing, quote-unquote, by taking part in these activities. Um, Taking part in relief work for fellow believers. Volunteer at the conventions, knock on doors, build kingdom halls. Um... That's 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 the list that they give. That's so funny and fucked up at the same time. Okay. Uh let's see. So we're twenty five minutes in. We got five minutes. Um just, just taking a glance through here real quick. We're almost done with chapter one actually. Alright, let's continue on. Jehovah took this okay, so this is paragraph fifteen. The champion of pure worship is the subheading. Jehovah took immediate steps in Eden to deal with the rebels and to ensure that his purpose would be fulfilled. Read Genesis 3:14-19. Even while Adam and Eve were still in the garden, Jehovah sentenced the three rebels, doing so in the order in which they had sinned, first Satan, then Eve, and finally Adam. In words directed to Satan, the unseen instigator, Jehovah foretold the coming of an offspring who would undo the effects of the rebellion. Well, okay, it seems easy to me to just prevent them from having children, just scrap them, and start over. Don't kill them, just let them live out the rest of their lives in the pain and misery that he, in effect, is putting them through by just not forgiving them, and and create a new pair, create a new copy. What's the issue here? I don't understand. Anyway, um... That promised offspring would play a vital role in fulfilling Jehovah's purpose regarding pure worship. Following the rebellion... Oh, yeah. Before I continue, I wanted to make note of a couple of things. First of all, you guys probably, for the non-ex-Jehovah's Witnesses watching, you probably notice um, a lot of touting the name Jehovah. That is actually usual. That's pretty common in their books. This isn't an, an exception. It's not like they're trying to double down on anything. They do do some of that in this book, but with the name Jehovah, they just constantly use it. It's just nonstop. Um, and then there was something else I wanted to make note of. What was it? Um, well, shoot. Never mind. I don't remember now. Uh, all right. We'll continue. Following the rebellion in Eden, Jehovah kept his purpose moving forward. He made arrangements for imperfect humans to worship him acceptably, as we will see in the next chapter. He also inspired a number of Bible writers, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, to record thrilling prophecies about the restoration of pure worship. That restoration is a prominent Bible theme. Those prophecies would all be fulfilled by the promised offspring. Of course, they're talking about Jesus there, the offspring, who turned out to... Oh, okay, they say it in the next sentence. Who turned out to be primarily Jesus Christ. What do they mean by primarily? I'm very curious about that. Maybe I'll just look that verse up. Galatians 3.16. Let's just see. Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Huh, that's interesting. So they cite a Bible verse. Okay, I'm, 
I have to go in on this. Let's just let's just dissect this real quick. Those prophecies would all be fulfilled by the promised offspring who turned out to be primarily Jesus Christ. And then they cite a Galatians verse. Primarily. That means Jesus wasn't the only one. There were there was more involved. There were more people involved than just Jesus, right? Of course, you know, standard Christians would say Jesus is the Savior. Okay, so there is no primarily with regular traditional Christians, at least not Methodists, as far as I know. Um, So this is where Jehovah's Witnesses differ on this issue. Let's just see what verse they cite and figure out what they're saying here. Uh, It says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person, and that one person is Christ. So they said, primarily Jesus, meaning more than one person, but it was mainly this guy. And they quote a Bible verse that says, it was only this guy. I'm, I'm really confused about what they're doing here, why they did that. All right, why did they even bother putting that in there? It refutes what they just said. All right, let's just continue on. Jesus is the champion of pure worship, as he clearly showed by his reply to the third temptation. Yes, Jesus is the one whom Jehovah chose to fulfill the restoration prophecies. He would deliver God's people from spiritual captivity and restore pure worship to its rightful place. Okay, so that was a really strange paragraph. Um... I'm not really sure why they made a lot of the choices they did in that, but, you know, I can only dissect it so much before it just starts falling to pieces. So let's continue on. Actually, we're almost to the end of the chapter, so I'm just going to finish this one up. The next subheading is called, What Will You Do? This is paragraph 17. It is exciting and faith-strengthening to examine the Bible's restoration prophecies. Those prophecies are are close to our heart because we look forward to the time when all cre- when all creatures in heaven and on earth will be united in the pure worship of the sovereign Lord Jehovah. Those prophecies also fill us with hope, for they contain some of the most heartwarming assurances found in God's word. Who of us is not eager to see the fulfillment of Jehovah's promises, including the resurrection of our dead loved ones and earthwide paradise and endless life in perfect health? See, this is, you know, they got the whole carrot and the stick bit. Um, this is the carrot. You want to see your, your dead family? You want to see, uh, you know, your mother walk again? This is what you have to do. You have to stick with us or, it will n- or you'll never get that, period. It's the carrot and the stick. And if you decide to leave us, here's the stick. We'll take your family away for the rest of your life. You'll never get to talk to him again. And at this point in my life, personally, I've pretty much gone scorched earth. I've lost my mom to the religion. She's still alive. I've just lost her to the religion. And, you know, that makes it worse almost because she's there. I could have a relationship with her. I just know she doesn't want to have a relationship with me. You know, it's not like she passed away and we didn't get to have the relationship that I knew she and I both wanted. She just outright doesn't want to know me. That's pretty sad. And that's the story of a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the stick. And here's the carrot. 
Okay, this is paragraph 18. In this publication, we will examine the thrilling prophecies found in the Bible book of Ezekiel. Many of those prophecies focus on the restoration of pure worship. We will discuss how Ezekiel's prophecies relate to other prophecies, how they will be fulfilled through Christ, and how they involve us. See the box and overview of Ezekiel. Interesting. Okay. Oh, cool. They got a little, a little box here about it. Okay, final paragraph. Back in the wilderness of Judea in 29 CE, Satan failed in his attempt to get Jesus to turn his back on pure worship. But what about us? Satan is more determined than ever to draw us away from true worship. May this publication help us to strengthen our resolve to resist that wicked tempter. And may we, by our words and actions, show that we are... God, this is a tongue twister. What a sentence to put in here. May this publication help us to strengthen our resolve to resist that wicked tempter. And may we, by our words and actions, show that we are in heart harmony with the words. It is Jehovah your God you must worship. Then we will have the prospect of living to see Jehovah's glorious purpose fulfilled at last. Everyone in heaven and on earth, united in giving Jehovah what he so richly deserves. Pure worship from our from pure hearts. This is like creepy now. This is straight up creepy. Giving Jehovah what he so richly deserves. Pure worship from pure hearts. Okay, what kind of God would demand worship from somebody? I don't demand worship from Kylie for, you know, what, buying her school clothes or, you know, well, I don't know, driving her to school every morning or something, doing things for her. I don't demand that she thank me for those things. And if she doesn't, she's not allowed to talk to her mom. I don't do that. That's insane. Who would do that? That is unethical and wrong. I mean... Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christianity more generally in my eyes, have completely twisted this so far out of proportion that they look at this as normal, where in reality it's not normal at all. So let's just take a quick glance at this, uh, this box here, an overview of Ezekiel is what it says. So it's broken down into sections. An overview of Ezekiel. Generally speaking, the book of Ezekiel may be divided as follows, it says. Chapters 1 to 3, in 613 BCE, while living among the Jewish exiles in Babylon, Ezekiel sees visions of Jehovah and is commissioned to prophesy to the Jews living by the river Chebar. Oh man, I bet there are a bunch of weird words that are hard to pronounce in this. Okay, so chapters, that's chapters 1 to 3. This is chapters 4 to 24. Wow, how many chapters are in this book? That's a lot. Between 613 and 609 BCE, Ezekiel delivers prophetic messages consisting primarily of judgment against Jerusalem and her rebellious, idolatrous people. Now, this is the interesting bit. This is the bit coming up because this, this pertains to 1914 and why it's significant to Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, chapters 25 to 32, it says, Starting in 609 BCE, the year the final Babylonian siege of Jerusalem began, which is not accurate, Ezekiel's message of judgment shifts from Jerusalem to surrounding enemy nations. Ammon, Edom, Egypt, Moab, Philistia, Sidon, and Tyre. Or Tyre, I don't know. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff is not accurate. This is based on chronology that they calculated and and that they calculated incorrectly um 
there's a guy named Carl Olaf Johnson, I think, who did a whole series of books, like seven books or something on this subject alone and why the Watchtower Society is incorrect about it. Um, their chronology is off by decades. So, and, and this is actually really, really important to their, like their core doctrine that these dates are correct. So, okay. And this is the final bit here. Chapters 33 to 48, starting in 606 BCE, with Jerusalem and its temple lying in ruins hundreds of miles away, Ezekiel focuses on a message of hope, the thrilling restoration of the pure worship of Jehovah God. Yeah, um, 606, 607 BCE, that, that's not the correct date. It was 586, 587. And we know that based on rock-solid evidence. I mean, we, you know, secular scholars have researched this heavily, and we just know it for a fact, period. So anyways, um, yeah, there's one more little section here. It says, the book of Ezekiel is thus basically arranged chronologically as well as uh, topically. Prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple come before the bulk of the prophecies about the restoration of pure worship. That makes sense for the restoration prophecies presuppose that worship at the temple had ceased. God, they word things so strangely in this. In addition, Ezekiel's prophecies against the surrounding enemy nations, chapters 25 to 32, are inserted between his judgment messages against Jerusalem and the prophecies about the restoration of pure worship. Commenting on Ezekiel's judgment messages to the nations, one scholar observes, oh, notice they didn't name this scholar, they got in trouble for quote mining scholars and uh, they've been, like, sued over it because they completely misquoted them intentionally. So it says, one scholar observes, they form a suitable transition from the declaration of God's wrath to that of his mercy towards his people because the punishment of their enemies is in itself a part of the deliverance of his people. Okay, I don't know why. It, uh, I, all right. Well, anyway, that's, <laughs> that's the end of chapter one for... Uh, you know, for the new Jehovah's Witness book. What's it called? A Pure Worship of Jehovah. That's the name of the book. It's going to take some getting used to. Anyway, yeah, uh, we'll we'll get to chapter two. That That's pretty interesting stuff so far. Uh, really interested in this book. Uh, I mean, chapter one was bound to be a little bit dry, but I don't know. It wasn't so bad. I thought it was kind of interesting, but yeah, can't wait to get to chapter two. Thanks for coming, guys.